Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast about the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. Welcome to the third and final installment of President Richard Nixon's Visit to China. What a whirlwind this three-part series has been. The wind has been whirled. It's February 1972. When Richard Nixon landed in China on February 21st, 1972, not everything was settled on the itinerary. The biggest open question was whether the president would meet with Mao Zedong, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. Just because Nixon had memorized Mao's poetry didn't mean that he was going to get a chance to sit by his knee and recite it. This was risky, leaving all of this to chance. If Nixon returned to the United States without having met Mao, his trip would have been regarded as a failure and a humiliation for the United States. Conservatives in particular, like writers like William F. Buckley, were ready to pounce on this failure. Here's how Buckley... For example, characterized Nixon's arrival. You'll remember that. The plane lands, and it's a very muted arrival, not a lot of big applause. Certainly not the kind of reception Nixon was used to in other countries, and not the kind of reception other leaders had been given when they got to China. And so you can hear Buckley, in in referring back to that welcoming, almost you can hear the rapier-keen wit whistling through the air, simply waiting to use that rapier to skewer the president in the posterior. Until the moment came, Buckley was uh, busying himself by delivering smaller nicks and cuts with his rapier. And here's, uh, here's how he wrote about Nixon's reception and then how Nixon then characterized that reception to his hosts. This is Buckley. Then there was the treatment of Mr. Nixon on his arrival in China, the already famous reception, at which the Guard of Honor looked as though it was there to perform quarantine duty. The motorcade through empty streets. If charity covers the big lie, here was the test. Mr. Nixon began his speech by thanking Zhao, that's Zhao and Lai, for his government's incomparable hospitality. At the hands of an ironist, that statement would have brought down the house. With Mr. Nixon, he merely scratches down the words on a pad nervously. Buckley there at the end, enjoying a little pirouette of self-reference. He is the he's the ironist. Reading old William F. Buckley rewards the reader. If we had that kind of partisan writing in today's cut and thrust, it would just make things a lot more joyous. So, if Nixon had flown all the way across the world and then been denied a visit with Mao Zedong, he would have looked like the supplicant, the, the fool who'd been on this errand. And remember, we are in the high state of international relations in which prestige, particularly in the struggle between capitalism and communism, is a huge deal. So how you look, how other people interpret you globally is a a big, big deal. And we see an echo of that, of course, in the way in which President Trump is seen by conservative critics to have, and and liberals for that matter, uh, seem to have handed over prestige and elevated North Korea in the summit in in Singapore in June of 2018. But Nixon didn't have to wait long to get his first big break on the trip. After the muted greeting at the Peking airport, Nixon lunched with the Chinese premier, Zhao Enlai. Then at 2.30 on that day, Zhao Enlai visited Kissinger and said the chairman wanted to see the president. Kissinger tried to postpone the meeting because he was trying to stall for time in order to prepare a little bit. But Zhao said, no, it had to take place now. It was Mao or never. 
I was getting ready to take a shower, wrote Nixon in his memoirs, when Kissinger burst in with the news that Chairman Mao wanted to meet me. Barely four hours after the wheels had hit the runway, Nixon was on his way to banking a considerable success on this week-long trip. It was going to send a clear signal to the world and to the Chinese people that Mao personally was behind the visit and the historic importance of the event, remembered Kissinger's aide, Winston Lord. So this was obviously very good news, even if it was a somewhat unorthodox way to proceed with the leader of the free world. And that's, that's Winston Lord. So Nixon, Kissinger, and Lord, along with the translator, sped off to the secret meeting. Left behind was Secretary of State Rogers. <laughs> who was not even informed of the meeting and was not an audience to the meeting. The press wasn't told either when the White House press secretary, Ronald Ziegler, heard about the sudden meeting. He bit off half of his tangerine, peel and all, in shock, according to one account. Nixon had started cultivating this new relationship with China in his inaugural address in 1969. Three years later, he was moving down the road in his limousine towards a crucial step forward. China... Just to remind, was a possible key to ending the Vietnam War. Nixon could justify removing America from the war if he could say that the Chinese threat, which had originally served as the rationale for the U.S. commitment, or one of them anyway, that that threat was no longer as big. If this rapprochement took place, perhaps Nixon could claim that. Also, under the Nixon doctrine, the United States was accepting the world as it was. That's what this was. This was a recognition of China's place, growing place in the world, the necessity of using China as a counterweight towards Russia. So it was Nixon carrying out in practice what he had fashioned as his doctrine, which is deal with the world as it is, not as you'd like it to be. No more ideological adventures. The United States could not take on all of communism. Better relations with China emphasized also the, this relaxation of the global ideological struggle between communism and capitalism. Ideology didn't keep countries from working together. So the U.S. would work with the communists in China and in fact, to work with them to drive a wedge between the communist powers in Russia. As a personal matter, of course, this is high stakes. Nixon saw himself in, in historic terms. He was going to sit face to face with Mao, the revolutionary leader who had single-handedly reshaped China, its culture, and its future. Nixon would, in this meeting, put his vision of history to the test, a vision that rested on great men giving a nudge to history. Oh, and success framed by the cameras that he and his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, made sure were there to record everything, would mean a strong chance at re-election for Nixon in November of 1972, which was nine months from the meeting. So, back to the Mao meeting. One of the reasons that the, the Nixon team coming into the trip to China thought that Mao was playing hard to get is that they thought that this was kind of the traditional Chinese way. Here's Margaret McMillan in her book, uh, Nixon and Mao, The Week That Changed the World. Here's how she characterizes this worldview of the Americans of China and Mao. Like those other great dictators, Stalin and Hitler, Mao was used to making others fit his timetable. His colleagues had long since grown accustomed to sudden meetings in the middle of the night. Mao was also a master at keeping his friends and enemies off balance. So, too, had been generations of Chinese rulers before him. To Winston Lord, this was a typical example of Chinese style, where the emperor used to keep visitors on edge and schedule, and the schedule was never fixed until the last minute. The purpose, Lord thought, was partly to make us feel grateful when the actual meeting took place and that it did take place. But there was another actual reason for the muddy signals. Mao was sick as a dog and headed downward towards the grave. On the morning of January 18th, a month before Nixon was due to arrive, one of the nurses panicked. When she could no longer find a pulse, 
in Mao's body. According to Mao's translator, Chairman Mao had been unconscious nine days before the meeting with Nixon. According to The Private Life of Chairman Mao by Dr. Li Deshui, Mao Zedong's personal physician and confidant, the medical team had stacked the oxygen tanks and wheeled in a respirator in advance of the meeting with Nixon. Kissinger, in fact, had shipped over the latter piece of equipment, the respirator, after his secret visit to the country. Mao's hospital bed was dismantled in advance of the meeting, and the oxygen tanks and respirator and other health equipment was hidden behind a lacquered trunk and potted plants. Mao was as excited as I have ever seen him, wrote his doctor. He woke up early and immediately began asking when the president was scheduled to arrive. Mao then had a shave and a haircut, his first in more than five months. So, Kissinger and Nixon step out of the limousine before what looked like a modest, a pretty modest house, which is not to be confused with the modest mouse. They then entered the modest house, walked past a ping pong table, of course, and then were greeted by a wave to go into Mao's study. Only Chinese photographers joined the two leaders. Mao took Nixon's hand in his own and shook it warmly for a very long time. Kissinger, Zhao Enlai, and Winston Lord were there, off to the side. Still not in the room, Secretary of State Rogers, and we'll get into that later. The two leaders sat. On the floor were piles of Mao's books, along with white porcelain spittoons. The conversation, which was originally meant to last for 15 minutes, lasted for over an hour, and the tone was amicable and occasionally light. Mao at one point took Nixon's hand and just held it. Nixon returned by praising the communist leader's writings. Those writings of mine weren't anything, Mao said. There is nothing instructive in what I wrote. Nixon would not hear a word of it. The chairman's writings moved a nation and have changed a world. Mao was still humble. I've only been able to change a few places in the vicinity of Beijing. Of Nixon's own writings, the chairman returned the compliment. Your book, he said, of the six crises, is not a bad book. And of Nixon himself, he remarked, I voted for you during your election. Nixon responded by saying, when the chairman says he voted for me, he voted for the lesser of two evils. Mao said, I like rightists. People say you are rightists, that the Republican Party is to the right. Nixon said, I think the important thing to note is that in America, at least at this time, those on the right can do what those on the left just talk about. Oh, damn. Nixon then, who had prepared carefully for this moment, did his best to talk about the relations between the two countries and about the international scene, but Mao waved him off. Those questions are not questions to be discussed in my place. They should be discussed with the premier. I discuss philosophical questions. Both men then tried to stick to the philosophical beat, but they enjoyed some some detailed ribbing of Henry Kissinger. Mao said that when they spoke, they would have to leave, they, when they spoke publicly, they would have to leave time to allow for Kissinger to speak. Mao had noticed the press coverage that Kissinger had gotten for his secret trips and, uh, and how approving that press coverage was and how it suggested perhaps Kissinger was at the center of everything. When Kissinger replied that, to the extent that he was covered in the news, it was only because he was doing what Nixon wished. Nixon got a laugh from Mao and Zhao by describing Kissinger as a very wise assistant for having said that. In his memoirs, Nixon talks about Mao's remarkable sense of humor and how his mind moved like lightning. 
Mao warned the Americans that the Chinese press would continue to run articles attacking the United States, and he expected the American papers would probably do the same, and said that it would take people in both countries time to become friends. Just before the meeting ended, Nixon offered one more dish of soft-serve ice cream. The chairman's life is well known to all of us, said Nixon. He came from a very poor family to the top of the most populous nation in the world, a great nation. My background is not so well known. I also came from a very poor family and to the top of a very great nation. History has brought us together. Remember that sense of Nixon's, that really cinematic sense of the two of them destined, great people, great men, on this almost mythical stage with the world as their props on stage. And we'll end the metaphor there. Premier Zhou Enlai kept checking all through this meeting. He kept checking his watch, worried for the chairman's health. And as soon as the meeting ended and the president was out of the room, Mao reportedly sank feebly back into his chair, put on an oxygen mask, and his face was described as being very pale. H.R. Haldeman wrote in his diary, The P called me up, P being short for president. Obviously, he was very impressed with the whole thing. Later reporting said that Mao was impressed too. He liked the way Nixon talked openly about the benefits of the United States of an improved relationship with China. And in a reference to the Soviet Union, Mao said he, is, he, being Nixon, is much better than those people who talk about high moral principles while engaging in sinister intrigues. Mao, uh, his opinion of Nixon increased during the week that they were there. Mao said this, There is a man who knows what he stands for, as well as what he wants. Here's a little aside about Mao's doctor from Elizabeth Hinson, who has been so helpful in, in researching these episodes. Dr. Lee Viswee had abandoned his dreams of becoming a neurosurgeon, reluctantly remaining in his position with Mao for 22 years until the Chinese dictator's death. So that's from 1954 to 1976. In China in those days, the job chose the man rather than the other way around, Dr. Lee Viswee told the Chicago Tribune. To refuse Mao would have been suicidal. After the meeting, Kissinger had some work to do on the Adobe Photoshop, which of course didn't exist back then, but he had to use its equivalent. (laughs) Secretary of State Rogers had not been included in the meeting, and not only that, his rival Kissinger was there, and even one of Kissinger's aides, Winston Lord, was there, and Rogers wasn't. So Kissinger asked the Chinese to crop Lord out of the official photographs of the meeting, so as not to hurt Roger's feelings more deeply. Though the Americans were pleased with Mao and the visit and the fact that it had taken place so quickly, uh, they, they first found it a little bit enigmatic. But upon reflection, they found real meaning in the kind of philosophical wisps emanating from the declining leader. Here's Winston Lord again recalling, The more we examined the transcript of the meeting, we realized that Mao had hit on the key issues, the Soviet Union, Taiwan, and Vietnam in just a few sentences, sometimes directly and sometimes in an allegorical way, stating the basic Chinese positions which gave us a framework to enlarge and flesh out over the next few days. It's important to remember in this, in this discussion of philosophy and in this discussion of Nixon and Mao getting to know one another that these are countries that had not been in contact since 1949. And there was a whole range of issues that they were going to need to be talking about. The Soviet Union, yes, but Vietnam, power in Asia, power, uh, the situation between Pakistan and India, 
the worldwide ideological struggle between communism and capitalism. That's far more than was going on in Singapore between North Korea and the United States in the summer of 2018. Now, in 2018, it's really about North Korea and its nuclear program, a much more limited set of conversations. And, and also, while the two countries were completely didn't know each other, there's no evidence, or there's obviously North Korea is not, doesn't play the role in the world that China would and the ideological struggle is not a part of that conversation either. A hard work, as Mao had suggested, would take place in negotiations between Zhao Enlai and Nixon and his team. Those meetings would take place over the next several days, and also Nixon would be traveling across the country, seeing the sights and building up that relationship forged in that first meeting with, with Mao. Zhao, the Chinese premier, was the graduate of an American missionary school, where, as Richard Reeves in his book about Nixon reports the motto of that school was face clean hair cut clothes neat button tight posture straight shoulders square chest out back straight beware of arrogance hot temper and idleness in all show amiability composure and dignity investigative journalist jack anderson wrote about zhao after meeting him not once was there a break in his impeccable mandarin manners that would reveal much about the man behind the suave smile Zhao was more, this is more Anderson. Zhao has the handsome face of the actor he started out to be. He was such a pretty fellow, in fact, that he was often given female roles. But if his face was expressive, it was also inscrutable. Only the dark, dynamic eyes are restless, darting, flashing, peering under arched black eyebrows. He developed such a talent for conspiring and conniving, ever switching to the winning side, always keeping his head below the purge line, that he came to be called... Pao Tao Wang, after the weighted Chinese doll that cannot be pushed over, but always bobs back up again. Weebles, they wobble. The weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. So during those meetings, let's go to the meetings on day two. But these meetings with Zhao sort of all smushed together in my mind. But in the second meeting, Nixon said this in an exchange with Mao. This is Nixon. Just as a historic note, who can be a prophet these days? I think that looking ahead to the next 25 years, peace in the Pacific is going to be key. And that is why our meetings are so important for the world. Zhao responded, when you say a generation, does that mean 25 years, maybe? I'm using it in the sense, said Nixon, that we are one generation since World War II, and in that period, we in the United States have had two wars, in Korea and Vietnam. I'm not so presumptuous as to look beyond 25 years. If I can see 25 years ahead, that is as far ahead as I can see. I have often referred to the fact that every generation of Americans in this century has experienced wars. World War I for the first generation, World War II for the second generation, Korea for the 50s, Vietnam for the 60s. I think four wars in a century is enough. Vernon Walters, the deputy director of the CIA, says this about Vietnam and the trip to China. The whole thing started with the idea of getting the Chinese to get the Vietnamese to accept some kind of a reasonable peace. That was the immediate reason for the opening to the Chinese. Vietnam was the wound that was bleeding. And that's from Nixon, an oral history of his presidency, uh, compiled by Gerald S. Strober and Deborah Hart Strober, a great book that I found in Brattleboro Books, in Boston, a fantastic used bookstore that's just brimming with wonderful finds and collections, and everybody there is very nice. So 
Zhao and Nixon never really come to an agreement on Vietnam, but they did trade important over information over these hours and hours of meetings about each country's ambitions and their aspirations. Reading the transcripts, you really get this feeling that they are both affirming that they are not ideological adventurers in their countries and that they'll not meddle in the other country's spheres of influence. That message of non-meddling really carried over on the question of Taiwan. Nixon was not abandoning Taiwan, but in his conversations with Zhao, he made it clear the United States was, was going to be stepping way back. The U.S. would no longer issue statements intimating Taiwan's undetermined status. Nixon also promised that he would not support Taiwanese independence. He would also discourage Japan from doing so and uh, discourage Japan from replacing departing U.S. troops with its own military forces. And fourth, he wanted a peaceful solution to the Taiwan issue and would not support any Taiwanese attempt to take back the mainland. That specific set of messages that were sent in the meetings with Zhao are, is from Chris uh, Tuda's book, A Cold War Turning Point, Nixon and China, which I've uh, relied on throughout this account. Getting rid of Taiwan was a real problem with conservatives. They had, uh, of course, focused on the battle between the communists and the nationalists who had had to, led by Chiang Kai-shek, that had had to retreat to Taiwan. And that uh, occasion, this article in the New York Times, in conservative San Diego, Nixon's trip is traumatic. And this was essentially a compilation of conservatives losing their marbles over the fact that Nixon was hanging out with the Chinese. Mrs. Warren Vinton is one of those conservatives. She's the president of the Republican Women's Club of Suburban La Mesa. She said this about the president's trip. I just can't stand it anymore, she said. It's shameful doing business with those criminals. A retired Vice Admiral A.E. Gerald said this. He, was, he said, Mr. Nixon led with his chin. The Chinese are going to make a lot of face out of his kowtowing to them. And I am afraid he's going to come away disappointed, if not embarrassed. The phrase, the China sellout, was used as the headline on a front page editorial in the Manchester Union Leader, which charged that, quote, President Nixon, apparently mesmerized by the evil influence of Harvard's Dr. Henry Kissinger, literally served up the free Chinese government on Taipei, that's the nationalist government, like a Chinese dish on a platter for tearing apart and consummation by the red Chinese killers in Peking. That's tough stuff. But if there was nervousness among the conservative base of the GOP, the president's trip, which had been planned for the cameras, was playing very well back in the in the United States, and they certainly thought it was playing well in the Nixon team. This is according to Mar- Margaret McMillan, who wrote, just to remind, Nixon and Mao, the week that changed the world. The China trip was Bob Haldeman's masterpiece, his Sistine Chapel, said a member of the White House staff. The images flowed back to the United States, targeted for primetime evening television. The handshakes, the glasses raised in toasts, the American flag flying in Beijing, Nixon with Mound, Nixon of the Great Wall and the Forbidden City, and the Great Hall of the People, Mrs. Nixon at a model farm, in a kitchen, kindergarten, or factory. It was a presidential election year at home, and Haldeman wanted to make sure that Nixon shone as the great leader and statesman while the Democratic candidates beat one another up in the primaries. The American press corps joked about Nixon's primary being in Beijing. The stage management of the trip was superb and obsessive in its attention to detail. The advance parties had checked out virtually every site Nixon would visit, paced out the steps he might take, and planned every camera angle. Nixon and his wife did spend a lot of time traveling and paying homage to the Chinese culture. They attended the Red Ballet, a morality tale about the benefits of the proletariat unity. 
And then Nixon visited the Great Wall. And when he was at the Great Wall, he said this. And one stands there and sees the, the wall going to the peak of this mountain and realizes that it runs for hundreds of miles, as a matter of fact, thousands of miles over the mountains and through the valleys of this country. Uh, that it was built uh, over 2,000 years ago. Uh, I think that you would have to conclude that this is a great wall and that it had to be built by a great people. On that same day, Nixon hinted to reporters that easing the restrictions on the travel by Americans to China might be one result of his talks with the Chinese leaders. This, of course, you know, easing the travel restrictions so Americans could come see the wall, too. It would be very valuable and worthwhile for Americans and, for that matter, people in all countries to be able to visit China, said Nixon. And there's a great little story, by the way, in this um, in this book, The Oral History of the Nixon Presidency, related to the, uh, the, the Great Wall of China. Pat Buchanan, who was uh, one of the president's communications, may have been his, his communications director at this point, um, Buchanan said to Nixon, you know, the Chinese people don't know that we've, we've, um, they've not been told about our men on the moon because of course the Chinese are hiding that knowledge from them because this is the, you know, the fight against the West. And that wouldn't it be a neat idea if the president in his speech at, at the great hall of the people that he would pay tribute to the Chinese civilization by saying that when the men were up on the moon, that they looked down and that they could see on earth, the only man-made object they could see was the great wall of China. And the president responded, it's all very amusing, but no. And that's the reason he said that, is that Nixon knew that it would offend his Chinese hosts. And and why would that offend the Chinese hosts? Well, you've already, smart whistle-stop listeners, identified that for what it would be, which is a kind of humble brag. It's the sidecar to the humble brag, or it's the anteroom to the humble brag, or the corollary to it, which is, I praise you for your thing that I am looking at from my much cooler thing. When you're a skillful political speaker, you know exactly how your words play. You may have an old crackly wall, but we've just put a man on the moon, an entirely different sphere in the galaxy. So it reminds you of this important thing about politicians, which is that they know even when something is not explicitly stated, it's power and meaning. And this is important, obviously, for dog whistles. And it's particularly it's important, obviously, in the Nixon context particularly in the election of 1968, where he takes over a lot of George Wallace's language, the questions and talk about the ghettos, the Vietnam War protesters, the whistles, the the dog whistles embedded in talk about the inner cities that people heard as turnout mechanisms playing on racial fears. Somebody with Nixon's acute political hearing, acute enough to see exactly what Buchanan was up to, or at least understand how the Chinese would see it, understands how things that you say will be heard in different audiences. And when they choose not to interrupt themselves or choose not to take things out of speeches that do have those dog whistle effects, it gives you, I think, more standing to make the claim that they know exactly what they're doing. Because often when politicians are called out for blowing a dog whistle, they say, oh, no, you're taking what I'm saying out of context. It's just your mind that's in the gutter that's interpreting what I'm saying in that bad way. But I think when you're as attuned to things as Nixon was, that being attuned doesn't just turn off uh, when you're saying other things, but not uh, when you're putting other things in speeches that you know will have those effects. Okay. Final dinner in China. 
February 27th, in his final toast at the Shanghai banquet on the eve of, the, of his departure and the signing after the signing of the Shanghai communique, Nixon said this. But what we have said in that communique is not nearly as important as what we will do in the years ahead to build a bridge across 16,000 miles and 22 years of hostility which have divided us in the past. Our two peoples tonight hold the future of the world in our hands. As we think of that future, we are dedicated to the principle that we can build a new world, a world of peace, a world of justice, a world of independence for all nations. The great soundbite from that final speech is this one. We have been here a week. This was the week that changed the world. The week that changed the world. Well, of course, William Buckley wasn't impressed. Writing about the president, the conservative writer said, he toasted Mao, Zhao, and the whole lot of them. I would not have been surprised if he had lurched into a toast of Alger Hiss. You'll remember, of course, Hiss was the communist who Nixon diligently pursued earlier in his career. So Buckley, still to the end, not swayed by the final speech in the week after the week-long visit. As they were headed out on Air Force One, Nixon was waving goodbye from the door. His fellow passengers were all seated, and the motors had started on the plane. And suddenly, a group of Chinese officials came rushing towards the plane in a jeep, or what Kissinger described as the equivalent of a jeep, that came racing towards the aircraft. And an official seated beside the driver waved frantically at Kissinger. Kissinger ordered the plane's motors to be turned off and waited, somewhat nervously, to see what had changed, what might be happening, what had changed, what did, did Mao want another audience? And to his bewilderment, the Chinese official got out of the jeep, ran towards the airplane, and handed Kissinger 33 wire coat hangers, which members of the American party had brought from the dry cleaning establishments of Washington, D.C., and left behind in their closets of the living quarters that they had occupied in Peking. It was, as Kissinger later remarked, a meticulous act, this return of the coat hangers. His interpretation was it was a meticulous act of hospitality to return to them these wire coat hangers, a kind of an odd ending to a historic trip. The announcement in Beijing, the week-long summit, produced an immediate improvement in American relations with the Soviet Union. Just as Nixon and Kissinger had hoped, Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev invited Nixon to meet with him in Russia. And it was a sign, said Winston Lord, that Nixon's effort at triangulation was working. Improved relations between China and America was leading the Soviets to pick up their game with respect to the Americans as well. This then led to a meeting with the Soviet leader in which Nixon became the first president to visit Moscow. The two men signed the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty and the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which paved the way to the reduction of nuclear armaments. Uh, Nixon also negotiated a, a bunch of other side agreements as well. So the results with the Russians are just one of the benefits of opening relations with China, right? So the, but we've talked about the benefits with China and the, and several times in these issue in these in these episodes. But here was a a kind of secondary effect. It wasn't just that China was being used as a wedge against Russia. It was improving relations with Russia. And it also took that pressure off of Vietnam, although that would continue on for longer. But in the larger context of presidential achievements, Nixon's trip to China was an, was an act of presidential foresight. We think of the presidency today, particularly with this president, it is an office that operates in the instantaneous, in the nanosecond. And one of the challenges of any any president and a great presidents um, is how to take a look at a big 
thing on the horizon that needs to be dealt with. In this case, China, Nixon knew, everybody knew that China was going to be a force in the world. We see it, of course, today. And so how to anticipate that, how to grab that, not wait for it, but set a goal and then work as Nixon did from 1967, you could argue, but certainly from 1969 all the way through to this meeting to achieve this goal that you've set out in your strategy long before it became an acute problem. This was foresight and patient execution over the course of three years. And if it did nothing more than reopen communications between these two countries, that would have been a big deal. But it also, in creating this new relationship, did away with some of the constraints of the previous generation, which had, and by that I mean basically the previous view of communism that had led to the wars in Korea and Vietnam. Basically, the idea of containment everywhere was done away with, and that was important not only in the evolution of American foreign policy, but it also mellowed them out in China, who basically thought, you know, there's not going to be another Korea or Vietnam, that that the Americans aren't hell-bent on destroying the regime in Peking. The trip was a way for America to realize, and again, this is over those hours of meeting with Zhao Enlai, that China was not seeking to expand its authority into, you know, the rest of Asia. Now, of course, as political matter, whoo, Nixon's, as a political matter, these are the articles, these are the headlines of the articles that were written back in the States. Nixon's Peking clout could win the ball game. Hear more from that article. In New Hampshire, as elsewhere in the United States, the television sets are on. And center screen, of course, is Mr. Nixon with handshakes and greetings aimed at communist China, but accompanied with the kind of high United States viewing ratings that no politicians here at home could buy at any price. And then uh, the Washington Post had in letters to the editor, the president's successful China trip has provoked in this aging liberal Democrat some long, hard thoughts about issues and political parties. Why didn't our party do it? Could we have gotten away with it? Why didn't our last president, Democratic president, travel to Peking instead of escalating the pointless and immoral Vietnam War? But it's too late now to torture ourselves with such questions. However, there may be some lessons for the Democrats in this sad situation. And finally, this is Senator Edward Kennedy. He was glowing in his appraisal of the president's trip and was, quote, confident that the joint communique ending the president's trip to China will be recorded as one of the most progressive documents in the long and distinguished tradition of American diplomacy and foreign affairs. There is no question in my mind, whatever the course of the future events in our policy towards China, The bridge that has now been built to Peking will be a lasting monument to the presidency of Richard Nixon. That's Senator Kennedy from the other party, whose brother ran against Nixon. After the meeting, there were a series of developments bringing China into into the community of nations. And even that, even when the U.S. went so far that in 1973, the United States shared intelligence information on the Soviet Union with China. Gerald Ford also met Mao in China in 1975, and Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping visited the United States in 1979. By the way, Ford making it to go see Mao, Mao survived longer in office than Nixon did. This turning point in the Nixon presidency adds to the fact that he is one of the most consequential presidencies in the last 60 years. Consequential, of course, for good and evil. Historical irony that on the same day that Nixon left for China, He accepted the resignation of Attorney General John Mitchell. Why was Mitchell resigning? Well, he was resigning to take over the re-election campaign. In that capacity, Mitchell controlled a secret fund to investigate Democrats, 
and eventually approved giving G. Gordon Liddy and his co-conspirators $250,000 to pay for the break-in and bugging of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate office building in Washington. He called that accusation a lie that he contributed that money to the G. Gordon Liddy Fund to break into the DNC, but Mitchell ended up serving 19 months in federal prison for his role in that process. That break-in, of course, would eventually bring down Nixon. Claire Booth Luce told President Nixon as he returned from China that each person in history can be summed up in one sentence. She said, you will be summed up. He went to China. Later, Nixon, reflecting on that, told Time magazine, historians are more likely to lead with, he resigned the office. Nixon was right in that assessment, but there was at least one other thing that remained for which he would be forever known. Forever after, Nixon would be associated with a politician gaining political prestige by playing against type. Only Nixon, goes the phrase, could go to China. That's it for this edition of Whistlestop. Nixon Goes to China, Volume 3, the third volume in a three-act whistle-stop. A rare three-act whistle-stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Or email us at whistlestop at slate.com. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, stretched out enough research material for this bad boy to be seen from space. Brian Rosenwald is also one of the editors-in-chiefs of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. And thanks to Elizabeth Hinson, who was my Sherpa in help with sorting and sifting and crunching through all of this mountain of research, which verily was as long as the Great Wall of China. Also thanks to the crew at the CBS News Radio offices who have been so patient with me. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. This has been an extraordinary leap over hill and dale with this three-part series of Whistle Stop. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. It won't be about Nixon and China, I don't think. So until then, listen to the great back catalog of Whistle Stop podcasts and uh, let your friends know about it. We do appreciate it. Thanks for being out there. Talk to you soon. <laughs>